This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to probably the most influential sci-fi action-adventure movie of the last 30 years, The Matrix, starring Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, and Hugo Weaving. However, quickly before we get to the show... Next week, we will be covering another sci-fi classic, this time from the 1980s, The Terminator. Written and directed by James Cameron, starring Michael Bean, Linda Hamilton, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can now sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've graded so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, all right, so Dad, I know this is one of your taboo movie genres, science fiction and, let's say, fantasy or basically anything with an alternative universe is not your bag. This is your first time watching this film notably, and I mentioned it in last week's episode, so, what were your initial impressions? I can see why I, people really like the film. Okay. It's a well-made film, and it's visually pleasing, it's interesting, it's entertaining, it's something that people could really get into. I see it, I see really well why people love the movie so much. I can't remember the first time that I watched this movie, but I do remember a lot of people around the time that I was in probably like 7th or 8th grade, so probably the 2002 to 2004 area, mentioning this movie as a movie that they loved and that it was a classic and everything else. I honestly don't remember anything about the time it came out or anything in the industry or the audience at that point or whether it was a big movie or not necessarily. I just remember for about a decade after that, it was something that we talked about a lot. And I remember that I did see it before we ended up, I think Mr. Miller showed it in our senior level economic and political theory class. And this was like part of our final for that class was figuring out how this did or did not apply the 48 laws of power from Machiavelli. I don't know. It was it was some <laughs> weird assignment, but I remember distinctly watching this. Wow. Okay. It was this and it was a... Errol Flynn film that I can't remember the name of. We watched both of those. Captain Courageous? No, 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 no. He was in tights. It was not Robin Hood, but it was something similar. I don't remember the name, though, of of the film. So it doesn't really matter. But it's odd that we kind of combined pieces of Shrek last week and then this movie. Because Shrek does an homage in that movie to The Matrix. And it's been copied. There are a lot of visual effects and action sequences that have been copied from this movie that are homaged in a ton of things, particularly in the first decade after it came out. But I think that its influence is felt in a lot of different ways all over the industry and in pop culture. And even up to now, I think it holds a certain level of cultural relevance. I teased you last week about red pilling and its significance of what people have come to believe about what conspiracy theories are, that they are going to be woken up. A lot of conspiracy theories have to do with, oh, you're going to be woken up to the truth, like the Matrix. And it's given us an entry point for a lot of really crackpot stuff in this universe. Okay, I could buy that, but um, I can think of how it also could interplay with certain 
Oh, conspiracy theories involving pizzerias and such, too. That, uh, well, that's what I have, meant. Have no basis in reality. Yes, it gives people an excuse that says that the truth is out there if you're only willing to look for it, that this this movie is not necessarily based in fiction, but has a lot more to say about what reality truly is. And I think it's, unfortunately, instead of being something that's entertaining or fun, then something that I think a lot of people invest a little bit too much into. Instead of treating it as a story, they treat it as a Bible? Well, I, I mean, Neo is quite messianic. It's meant to be overly philosophical and referential to a lot of, let's say, religious themes. So it's not by accident that this could be somebody's Bible, per se. But I I don't know. All that being said, I know a lot of people, including myself, are very hard on the last two movies in the trilogy or the original trilogy. And so... I don't think we'll be covering either of those films that expanded the universe. I think by far this one is the classic and the other two are just kind of eh. And given how the last one ends, I'll be very curious how they exactly reboot the series now with Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss both coming back to star in that movie. Apparently Larry Fishburne's too old to do the stunts, so they got Yahya Abdul-Mateen to do basically a reprisal of Morpheus at this point, but I thought that Larry Fishburne ha- actually had some sort of like rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, so that he's too physically ill to do a lot of action. That could be. I mean, it's 20 years removed from that movie, and he still doesn't look terribly old, even when he appears on Blackish as the grandpa. Well, he does a show right now about conspiracy theories. On, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> That's not on the nose or anything. Yeah, I, I watched it. It was interesting. They did a five-parter on section or on, uh, what is it, uh, Base 51 or... Area 51? Area 51, yeah. He did one on D.B. Cooper. Oh, how very astute of them. Yes. All right. Well... I don't know if there's too much more background I want to do before we get into the the bulk of the film and kind of what the impressions were. So let's start off with the plot summary, if you have one for us, sir. All right. Computer programmer Thomas Anderson, Keanu Reeves, known by his hacking alias, Neo, believes that Morpheus, Lawrence Fishburne, an elusive figure considered to be the most dangerous man alive can answer his question. What is the Matrix? He is eventually contacted by Trinity, Carrie Ann Moss, who tells him a man named Morpheus has the answers he seeks. Morpheus soon discloses that Neo is the man he has been searching for, the one, the person who can bend the Matrix to their will and is the one prophesied to free mankind from the Matrix. But just how far down the rabbit hole is Neo willing to let Morpheus take him? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Keanu Reeves as Neo slash Thomas Anderson, Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus, Carrie Ann Moss as Trinity, Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith, Joe Pantoliano as Cypher, Marcus Chong as Tank, Anthony Ray Parker as Dozer, Julian Aranga as Apoc, I hope I pronounced that right, Matt Doran as Mouse, Gloria Foster as The Oracle, Belinda McClory as Switch, Paul Goddard as Agent Brown, and Robert Taylor as Agent Jones. Recognition for this film, the film won four Academy Awards including Best Film Editing, Sound, Sound Effects Editing, and Visual Effects. In 2001, The Matrix placed 66th in the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Thrills list. In 2007, Entertainment Weekly called The Matrix the best science fiction piece of media for the past 25 years. In 2009, the film was ranked 39th on Empire's reader, actor, and critic voted list of the 500 greatest movies of all time. The Matrix was voted as the fourth best science fiction film in the 2011 list Best in Film, The Greatest Movies of Our Time, based on a poll conducted by ABC and People, the magazine. The Matrix was also influential for its impact on superhero films. 
John Kenneth Muir in the Encyclopedia of Superheroes on Film and Television called the film a revolutionary imagination of movie visuals, paving the way for the visuals of later superhero films and credits it with helping to make comic book superheroes hip and effectively demonstrating the concept of faster than a speeding bullet with his bullet time effect. Adam Sternberg of Vulture.com credits The Matrix with reinventing and setting the template for modern superhero blockbusters and inspiring the superhero renaissance in the early 21st century. In 2012, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Did you know? The Wachowskis harbored their vision for five and a half years, working through 14 drafts of the screenplay. Although most studio executives who read the script loved their ideas, they had extreme difficulty imagining how this would translate onto the screen. The Wachowskis then hired their leading illustrators, Steve Scrochi and Jeffrey Darrow, who created over 600 storyboards. Executives were reportedly sold immediately after seeing the bold vision on display and greenlit the film. Did you know? All scenes that take place within the Matrix have a green tint, as if watching them through a computer monitor. Scenes in the real world have a blue tint. Blue was also used at a minimum within the Matrix since the directors thought blue was more of a real-world color, despite, ironically, blue being often the least occurring color in nature. The fight scene between Morpheus and Neo, which is neither in the real world nor in the Matrix, is tinted yellow. Did you know? Will Smith was approached to play Neo, but turned down the offer in order to star in Wild Wild West from 1999. He later admitted that, at the time, he was not mature enough as an actor, and that, if given the role, he would have messed it up. He had no regrets, saying that Keanu was brilliant as Neo. Sandra Bullock had been offered the role of Trinity, but turned it down because Will Smith was in the film. She regretted her decision. Had she been cast, she would have reunited with Keanu Reeves, with whom she had previously starred in Speed. Did you know? Legendary Hong Kong stunt coordinator Wu Ping Yun initially refused to work on the film, even after receiving the script, which he liked, he hoped that by asking for an exorbitant fee, it would turn off the Wachowskis. When that failed, he next gave what he considered to be an impossible request. He'd agree only if he had complete control of the fights and that he'd be allowed to train the actors with his own team four months prior to shooting. The Wachowskis complied. Did you know? At the director's request, the actors and actresses were to be able to understand and explain The Matrix not only as a film, but a philosophy. Simul Acra and Simulation was required reading for most of the principal cast and crew. Keanu Reeves stated that the Wachowskis had him read Simul Acra and Simulation out of control and evolutionary psychology even before they opened the script. Eventually, he was able to explain all the philosophical nuances involved. Kiryan Moss commented that she had difficulty with this process. Did you know? Prior to the pre-production, Keanu Reeves suffered a two-level fusion of his cervical spine, which had begun to cause paralysis in his legs, requiring him to undergo neck surgery. He was still recovering by the time of pre-production, but he insisted on training. Stunt coordinator Wu Ping Yun let him practice only punches and lighter moves. Reeves trained hard and even requested training on days off. However, the surgery left him unable to kick for two out of the four months of training. As a result, Reeves did not kick much in the film. Did you know? Carrie Ann Moss performed the shots featuring Trinity at the beginning of the film and all the wire stunts throughout herself. Did you know? In the combat training program, before Neo spars with Morpheus, he rubs his nose with his thumb and finger, similar to Bruce Lee before he attacked his opponents. The move was improvised by Reeves. Did you know? By the middle of 2002, the famous bullet time sequence had been spoofed in over 20 different movies. Let's take a quick break and we will be right back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, so Dad, what is this movie about or how would you elevator pitch it? The alternative future of, all, of artificial intelligence. Okay, I think I might need you to explain that one more because that's so vague as to what would happen if artificial intelligence instead of being an assistance to man ended up overtaking man you could almost say this is the planet of the apes with technology instead of mammals 
That's an interesting point. I guess I hadn't considered that, but yeah, I could I could buy that. That would actually be a really good elevator pitch for this movie. I went with a messianic figure is woken from a computer simulated reality to free mankind. Okay, I can see that. So then, best performance. Who did you have down? Keanu. I mean, Reeves does the bulk of it. He's the one who has to portray confusion and actually convey the realization and the absorption of uh, the situation and, and, and advance and grow into the part of the ultimate savior. And he does it well. I really enjoyed his performance. It's why I gave him best secondary, but I actually thought there was a better primary performer in my mind, and it's Lawrence Fishburne. There is something to be said that he has to essentially be an even more involved and father-like figure than Obi-Wan was to Luke Skywalker. I mean, if you think about it, Star Wars' structure is very similar to this, except that there isn't quite the age difference. Larry Fishburne and Keanu Reeves aren't terribly far apart in ages in the same way that Obi-Wan's like in his 60s or 70s, Alec Guinness at the time. And you had Mark Hamill in, I think, his early 20s. So you could definitely see the, the age difference. But from the amount of presence that Fishburne has to have on screen, that Morpheus seems to have all of the answers and in all of his explanations, it's also why I went with him for my most charismatic. He has to own the screen. You have to not only find him authoritative, but believable. And he has to make all of this make sense without being off-putting. And I thought that was a terribly difficult, but excellently performed job by him. Okay, I can understand your statements. I, I guess to me, he did not have to exemplify the range of emotions that you would normally expect for somebody to be given a best performance. I think a lot of his was to be dark and mysterious and gruff and kind of like mumble your lines a little bit so that you sounded nemesing. Sure, I can also see that, but there's a certain level of conviction that he has to have that he's trying to pull Neo along through the course of this movie. I mean, you go into the training fight. Why don't you stop trying to hit me and hit me? And he's just trying to poke and prod. And yet he's so convicted that Neo is the one, that he has to be the overarching figure within this entire thing that has such a singular focus on him being the one and being able to basically pull him along, pull him out of his shell and prove that he is, because this is the guy that's going to save mankind. I thought that that was actually a tougher job than acting confused, which, frankly, I think Keanu Reeves has had that down since Bill and Ted. <laughs> okay. That being said, Keanu was my best secondary, and I did like the job that he did because it is a hero's journey, and you have to buy in to the hero for the hero's journey to work. You have to, at, at first be kind of clueless to everything that's going on, and yet on the back end, also be willing to buy into everything and then have the conviction to take on Agent Smith at the end of the movie. And realistically, for me, the best part of the movie has always been after he dies and then he comes back. Yes, spoilers, people, but this is a 20-plus-year-old movie at this point. When he comes back and he has that Matrix moment, you could see him now being able to see the Matrix as the coded version as opposed to actual reality, and that he has gained this ability in a way that I don't think you would have necessarily gotten to any other way. And it's believable. He, You can buy into him. He's always been a good charismatic figure, but this promotes him as, I would say, maybe the action adventure, or excuse me, the action hero of my generation. Between Speed and this, and then the John Wick films, I don't know if there's anybody else that could lay claim to being the preeminent action hero of basically since the 80s. Okay. All right. I mean, Bruce Willis did some stuff in the 90s continuing on with Die Hard, but I don't think that he was like the star. And Schwarzenegger had kind of gone into 
politics by this point, and he hasn't really resurfaced. Stallone's kind of come back around a couple of times with a couple of new Rambo movies that nobody liked or wanted, or for that matter, a couple of uh, Rocky movies that I thought actually were pretty decent, but okay. How about uh, Tom Cruise? Yeah, okay, I could buy that. I mean, well, I guess Keanu and Tom Cruise probably are around the same age. Yeah, early 50s or mid-50s? I think Tom Cruise is pretty close to 60. I want to say Tom Cruise is a few months older than me. He very well could be. Tom Cruise is 59. Yes, he's a few months older than you. He was uh, born in... Oh, no, he's a year and a half older than you. He's uh, July of 62. Okay. Uh, yeah, Keanu's 57. He was September of 64. And he was born in Lebanon. <laughs> I don't know. Tom Cruise's real name is Tom Cruise Maplethorpe. <laughs> okay. And his parents were actual CIA operatives, covert operatives. I don't know. I actually think Tom Thorpe could have actually been a pretty good stage name. Tom Cruise is its own thing, but Tom Thorpe isn't bad. Got the alliteration in there. Anyway, who did you go with your best secondary performance? Carrie Ann Moss. I thought uh, she did a really nice job of playing what I think is a rather difficult part. She's a total badass throughout the film, and her role ultimately is to protect the one and to say, that her whole purpose is to fall in love with him. <laughs> Only in the 90s could Hollywood do something so meaningful for women's roles. <laughs> I don't know. We've already proven that the 80s was pretty bad, too. Well, we won't even discuss that. <laughs> All right. And uh, I gave Larry Fishburne my most charismatic. Again, I think it's just a presence on screen that even in the scenes with Neo, he's the predominant figure that you focus on. And to me, that's charismatic. Who did you have down? I had Reeves. I just, and I was trying to remember, he was in a film playing himself and almost making fun of himself. And I can't remember what film it was. It was a recent Netflix film called Call Me Maybe. Or, excuse me, Be My Maybe. That's what it was. Call Me Maybe is a song. We don't need to get into that. But anyway. Yeah, and he's making fun of himself because he's taking, you know, well, this is just one John Wick check. And to me, that's what makes him so charismatic because he's this kind of guy that you feel like he's approachable. He's a big Hollywood star, but he's someone that I think most people would not have a problem going up to and saying, hey, Keanu, hey, and feeling like they had a connection with him. I think there are three noted actors that are incredibly nice that I guess if you ask all the like behind the scenes people, just are one of the most genuinely nice people. And he's on that list. The other two that I know of offhand that everybody just says are universally some of the nicest people, Tom Hanks and Henry Winkler. But outside of that, I mean, he takes such oddball roles anymore. Since he did basically The Matrix, he's just not been in a lot of big budget movies. He kind of hit gold with the John Wick films, but outside of that, he made most of his hay doing the original Matrix films and then some of those blockbuster films from the mid-90s. Point Break and uh, Speed were his other big claims to fame. And then Bill and Ted, which he did a, a new what was it, uh, uh, sequel to not too long ago, which I guess was or or at least wasn't that great, but wasn't terrible either. I don't know. I didn't watch it. I've never seen any of the Bill and Ted films. Well, I just remember an interview years ago with Sir Patrick Stewart commented that, that all the money they paid him to do Star Trek, both the TV show and then subsequently the films, that at that point in his life, he had more money than he could spend. And so that allowed him to do whatever he wanted. So if he wanted to play Scrooge on stage in, in Washington, D.C., he could because he didn't have to worry about the money. He just did what he wanted. I'm sure that Reeves has himself set up financially that he'd never have to work. And so he just does stuff that interests him. If it doesn't interest him and it's a big thing, he doesn't care. 
Well, I mean, he's created some of the most iconic characters of the last 30 years. And at some point, it's not like he really needs to do a whole lot else since he's been in a couple of major franchises. I mean, John Wick's going to continue to push him along for a few years if he continues to do more of them. And I think they're basically just set up to do six John Wicks as long as his body would allow, I would assume. Best scene. So these are the ones that I picked out. The opening with Trinity escaping, that leap through the window down the stairs and kind of the chase of all of that, it really introduces you. I, I think that a lot of great action movies, and you can see this in uh, a lot of Michael Mann films, you can see this in most of the Mission Impossible films, most of the James Bond films. Basically, every great action movie has to have a good, high-paced opening scene that kind of takes you into the movie and says, all right, we're now starting, and here's the momentum pushing you forward. And I thought that this was actually a really good opening to kind of give us that impression that, okay, these guys are a little bit different. We don't know what kind of world we're in yet, but it's kind of giving us the first inkling that it's going to be a little bit different, and it's going to be a different kind of action movie. Interrogation of Thomas Anderson. So this is the scene where they place the bug inside of him, which... All of a sudden, now you're like, okay, this is a completely different movie, and this is going to be way beyond what I thought it was. Because up until that point, there really wasn't a whole lot of extracurricular sci-fi. It just kind of felt like a real-world movie, and you knew at some point it was going to have to go there. The red pill or blue pill, because all of the references to Alice in Wonderland and, and everything else that goes on with that, and that obviously has uh, cultural significance beyond that, which we've already discussed. The training sequence in the dojo, which, all right, now we got into some of the fight sequencing and the, the hand-to-hand -hand combat that this movie is famous for. The Oracle, and that's one of the scenes that I've still been trying to piece together for years, and no matter how many times I've watched this, I still, in this reviewing for the episode, actually thought of something new in relation to that scene. Cypher's betrayal, for obvious reasons. Rescuing Morpheus, also for obvious reasons. The subway duel, which has kind of the feel of a Western, but in this modern action movie. And I think that one's been borrowed and copied a bunch of times, in, notably in superhero films. And then He's the One, which is that final Matrix moment that people talk about. Any of the scenes that I missed? Uh, no. All right. So what do you think was the best scene out of those? Uh, the Morpheus captivity scene. I mean, that, I really, I think, and that's kind of my favorite scene because it's the whole concept of reaching and establishing himself as the one based upon his ability to self-sacrifice for the good of another. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought of that angle, but that is also part of the messianic thought process is that he has to sacrifice himself for the greater good, or at least he considers it being that. And as a result, it becomes cathargic, and he ends up reaching the, the pinnacle of his of his self, of what his being was to achieve. The best scene to me is also my favorite and probably the most indelible. And it's the scene that I think would be the most rewatchable one that I would just go back to on a loop almost. And it's the subway duel. There's kind of that Western theme to it. You kind of get that rattling score there for a second where the newspaper kind of blows past them and they're clearly just looking at each other kind of in an old western stare down and then they start shooting and then there's the, all the physical hand-to-hand -hand combat and that thing goes on I want to say a good 10 to 12 minutes before finally he gets the better of Agent Smith at least for a split second so I thought that was a really creative way of trying to do an action sequence. We'd already gotten hints of it in the training scene, but it seems to me that most modern like duels kind of come in this fashion, that there are a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat and there are a lot of, frankly, martial arts style effects of hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so I thought this ended up becoming something that has probably been revisited over and over multiple times over. So what was your favorite scene then? The Red Pill. Now, is this the actual him taking the pill, them putting him in, and then him waking up in the tank, or is this the explanation of the Matrix? Where it's you, ha or it starts with you can choose the blue pill, 
or you can choose the red pill. Okay. That whole sequence. It's my most indelible. I, I think that's really the crux of it and um, really becomes probably one of the more iconic elements of the film. Yeah, I would say that the explanation and the world building that goes on during that entire sequence is certainly not lost on multiple viewings of the movie. So that you said that's your most indelible too? Yep. All right, so that gets us to our second break. We will take a quick break and be right back. All right, thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad, before we get into best funniest lines, which I don't think there were many funny lines in this movie per se, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Heath Freeman, 41, American actor, raising the bar, the TV show Bones, Skateland Past. David Fox, a Canadian actor, uh, Mama Grey Owl and X-Men. Uh, Roy Holder, uh, 75, an English actor. He was in Pride and Prejudice and War Horse. Jerry Douglas, who was, well, at least to a lot of people, was a big star in The Young and the Restless, uh, but had done several films as well uh, earlier in his career. Henry Wolfe, 91, he was a British actor who was in uh, The Bed's uh, Sitting Room, uh, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, and uh, Gorky Park. I don't really have much of a relationship with any of these uh, particular actors, but Heath Freeman, I guess, was also on uh, NCIS, so both of my sisters have a show that he was on. I'm not sure if they know it, that he passed away. Yeah, I, I don't know. So I'll have to mention 41 is, is awfully young, though, and... Uh, no cause of death was, was noted. Yeah, they apparently found him dead in his home, so that always leads to some uh, speculation that I, I won't get into on this program, but uh, unfortunate nonetheless. So we thank these wonderful actors for their contribution to movies and the arts and recognize them here with a moment of silence in their memory. Thank you. All right. Best lines, funniest lines. Uh, what do you have down first? Cypher. I know what you're thinking. Because right now I'm thinking the same thing. Actually, I've been thinking it ever since I got here. Why, oh, why didn't I take the blue pill? We need guns. Lots of guns. Agent Smith, you hear that, Mr. Anderson? That is the sound of inevitability. Morpheus, unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You'll have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Morpheus, let me tell you why you're here. You are here because you know something. What you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. Neo and Morpheus, I thought it wasn't real. Your mind makes it real. Uh, Morpheus, fate, it seems, is not without a sense of irony. If real is what you can feel, smell, taste, and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Morpheus, remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Agent Smith, I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species, and I realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply, and multiply until every natural resource is consumed, and the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You're a plague, and we are the cure. You have any others? Trinity, the answer is out there, Neo, and it's looking for you, and it will find you if you want it to. So you've been asking me for a while now what my final line for next season is going to be, but this is one that I actually considered for this season. Neo, I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future, 
I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to hang up this phone, and then I'm going to show these people what you don't want them to see. I'm going to show them a world without you. A world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. Any others? Nope. All right, then it's Stanley Rubric time. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go or do you want me to start? Go ahead. It's your, more your film than mine. I think that this has a significant impact on where movies have gone, specifically action movies, and anything that has visual effects over the last 20 or 30 years, and I think it's touched just about every film in that genre, from hand-to-hand combat and the editing and cutting of that, to how you do wire stunts, to how you just basically do the very blocking and tackling that has become the basics of every action-adventure movie. And it promoted certain stars that have been through the course of other action movies. There would not be a John Wick without The Matrix, and Keanu Reeves basically being this action hero. You would not have multiple movies of this franchise and then have people clamoring to have it come back here in another few weeks for a movie that I don't think anybody necessarily asked for or wanted, but got excited about when all of a sudden there was going to be a new one. I think this is a five from the industry. From the audience size side of it, I would say that this movie was incredibly influential and it's a classic. I think just about everybody in my generation has seen it and knows exactly when you do the, like, the bullet time freeze frames, the in real time where the bullets are literally rifling in midair. Everybody knows what that is and what that represents. But is this uh, a film that is in such a popular conscience that or consciousness that it's like one of the the top movies of the last 20 years, probably for me, but I can't say that of everybody in the audience. I think it has a, a significant impact on, like we said, conspiracy theories, or now that simulation theory is a big thing, everybody always references, oh, we could be in The Matrix, and it's a computer simulation by somebody else, and we're just all plugged into this thing. I mean, that that's become a like staple of normal reality now is that, oh, we could always just be in that. So from an audience standpoint, I think it's high, but I don't think it's the highest. So I went with a 4.5. It ends up in a 9.5 for me. I think it's got a sweet spot, which is about your generation, maybe a little older and uh, a little... I suppose. I I guess I hadn't necessarily considered past. Yeah, uh, so my generation is familiar with it. They may have seen it. There may be some that like it, but it's not something that we definitely have a relationship to. And I have some question as to whether those uh, in their early 20s have the same relationship with the film as well. I think they do, but it's not as significant. So for that reason, I went with a five for industry because I agree with everything you said there. But I actually thought 3.5 for Legacy for the public is appropriate because it has that sweet spot where it's extremely impactful as far as legacy to a, to a generation. But the generation before and the generation after, I don't think it has quite the same significance. I think you could possibly be right, and so it makes sense. So that's an 8.5 overall for you for a 9 average between us. Impact significance. I'll go first on this one. I I think that this had a significant impact in the industry because I think it did have a lot of ramifications for things at that time and how movies were done and the genre it was involved in. So I went with, I can't give it a complete because, again, this was a rather unique film. It's not like they would clone aspects of it. It wasn't like the this created a whole series of films about an alternative universe unless you want to consider the whole Marvel universe as a separate entity. And simply because that's feasible, I actually went with a 4.5 for that. And from the public, this was a highly discussed movie. 
whether you liked it or you didn't like it or you wanted to see it or you didn't, there was lots of strong opinions. And I think to some extent, because I am more a historian and like historically based stories more than uh, speculation about the future and alternative life and theories of where things will go. I think that's probably why I didn't see it. <laughs> to be honest, if people would have just said, hey, it's a great film, it's fun to go watch, uh, don't read too much into it, I think I would have had a better feeling about going to see it than the uh, uh, alternative, which is, oh my God, this is so blowing of my mind. I'm like, oh, you know, and I'm like, Ugh. <sighs> sure. So I went with a four for that simply because of the dichotomy. There was a whole sect of people who uh, did not really want to run out and see the film. So because... you've now said three different numbers and I have to track your overall score. So what Excuse is me? You started off saying it was a five for the industry, and then yes. you said something about a four point five, and now you've given a four. I, I all right, my mistake. As far as uh, a five for the industry, and I went with a four for the general public for nine overall. Okay, I went with a five for both of them. I thought this was incredibly culturally impactful. I don't think you could escape that this movie came out even if you didn't necessarily see it. And to a certain extent, even if you hadn't seen it, you probably understood and recognized some of the references, even without necessarily knowing or being involved or being a fan of the movies. So just knowing and being a part of the cultural impact of the time, I thought that also from an industry standpoint, this might be the most influential visual effects and sci-fi movie Second, maybe only to Star Wars, as far as how the movie genre moved forward with action sequencing, with visual effects, with fight sequencing, all of that having to do with this movie. And if you want to place it on where uh, action movies and superhero movies went, you had at least a few different influential ones right after this that took a lot of the same effects and used them. I would point directly to like the X-Men movies that came out shortly after this as being directly in the shadow of something like this movie. So I went with a, a five for both, 10 overall, and your nine makes that a 9.5 average between us. Novelty. For me, this is a straight 10. I don't even think I need to make much of an argument. This is one of the most unique films and worlds that I think has ever been built. While it does borrow from AI is going to eventually destroy us, and I don't think that was necessarily new. That's been basically written about since probably Jules Verne. I still think that they did it in a new and provocative way that humans have become batteries, essentially, for the machines to survive, and then used a simulation theory that I don't think had been put on camera before in such a way, and then made it entertaining, combining with all of the shooting visual effects and the gunplay, and then all the martial arts style hand-to-hand -hand combat with the wire stunting. This is a one of one. This was a complete unicorn at the time and has continued to be that makes it why it was influential on all of these other films that came after it. So for me, this is a 10. I gave it a 10. I, I couldn't think of anything that was anywhere close. Maybe the underlying concept, as you indicated, with artificial intelligence, but it went a whole new different or direction and uh, completely unique. And I couldn't think of anything. I mean, other than the fact that I started to talk about an artificial intelligence just being basically a, a revamping of the uh, planet of the apes, but even that might be a stretch. So I gave it a 10. I think it's more of a similar similar thing that people of your generation could easily point to and recognize, okay, it's kind of similar from a structural standpoint, or at least in concept. And so I can use that to borrow and understand where this is coming from. And yet it separates itself through the amount of things that are going on and a lot of the concepts that you need in order to grasp what this is, because this is from the digital computer age. Yes, the primitive version of the digital computer age. I think we'd only had the uh, accessible internet to everybody for about two or three years at this point. So it wasn't like it was this giant thing that everybody understood. 
it plays much differently in today's universe where the internet is so intertwined at every moment of our lives. But I, th- I wonder if something like the matrix came out now, how that would in- be influenced with how we interact with social media and the rest of it. That's why I'm curious to see where they went with this new film and how they conceptualize a more modernized matrix world or universe. It's run by Zuckerberg. Well, I mean, that wouldn't be necessarily far off, at least in my opinion. The only things I think you could tick back against this is that it borrows from the religious philosophical traditions that we have. We talk about him being a messianic figure. I think that this movie works because you have to borrow on some of the religious traditions that you already have in place. So when you talk about somebody being the one who can save mankind, at least in the Western canon, that is something relatable and you don't really have to use to explain and uses as something that you can put forth as an idea so that people don't necessarily get lost. This is a completely religious story because what is the basis of all, uh, well, at least the three largest religions, Christianity, Muslim, and Judaism, all right? You mean Islam. Islam, excuse me. And Judaism, it's it's the idea or concept of original sin against God, ultimately uh, by our own sin destroying ourselves. And that's what this concept is. We've gotten to the point where we ultimately created something ourselves to further destroy us. Yeah, it's our own ego and pride that's somehow fighting back against our own principles. Or, excuse me, basically trying to kill us. Yeah. So, to that extent, that's that's how I would go. You know, that would be the only potential step down, but it's so far to the highest level of a 10, I can't even mark it down for that. I know. I, I'm just trying to at least give the alternative since both of us went for a 10. Classicness, I'll let you lead. As I indicated, I give it a point down because, yes, the woman's role is to be a badass, but ultimately to fall in love with the one and to help lead him uh, and save him and to support him. And uh, so uh, just the the traditional female role, I went down to an 8.5 for that, for that one primary reason. Okay. I went one point down from my number seven that I usually start at. For really? all the modern, hold on, for all the modern conspiracy and QAnon linkages that this seems to have inspired, but the action choreography effects, influence, philosophy, etc., that are still almost all up to date, I have to give it almost the full points up. So if you go up to the top and you just start from a 10 then, work back the point because of its unfortunate history in modern culture, and I'll also give it a slight half point off because... Every time I see like old cell phones in any type of movie, like an old (laughs) flip phone or like a really old Windows or Mac computer, it just is so weird and off-putting. Like it's a complete relic that I have to kind of give it just a little bit of that because that always takes me a slight bit out of the film. I ended up at the same 8.5. Well, at least you can say that you didn't hear dial-up. I thought there was at one point in this. I didn't remember it, but okay. I think it's really early on, like when uh, you find Neo is sleeping at his computer. But anyway, it doesn't matter. All right, rewatchability. Uh, since this one was more of a favorite, this is one I watch probably once or twice a year, almost pretty regularly. I come back to this film a lot. Like I said, I like finding new things in this film. It's a very easily rewatchable film. I don't, I can't remember the last time I watched either of the sequels to this movie. But I certainly do regularly watch this one and basically just discount that the other two exist, although I will have to recognize them here uh, upcoming with a new sequel. But I I don't know. This is not one of my elite favorites, the ones that I I really love and that I really go back to, the ones that I quote all the time. But it's pretty damn close. So I'm going to end up at a 9.5. All right. I will have a different number. Really? By a significant portion. I, 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 When I was thinking about this, I was trying to think, what are the movies that I would never rewatch? 
Revolutionary Road with DiCaprio and uh, wow, are you are you really going that far? Yes, and uh, Kate Winslet. That would be a point uh, two five because we don't have zero. We can have zero. Why not? Well, I suppose that would that would be about where it would be is a zero. But so, but hold on. So, Revolutionary Road and like again. Zero is pretty much reserved for birth of a nation on <laughs> just about everything. Okay, so, all right, so if I give birth of a nation a zero, all right? Revolutionary, uh, Revolutionary Road, is, Road point is a five. .5, all right? So and where is this? Moulin Rouge is about a one. So, no. <laughs> so uh, this is basically Saint where El- your pain tolerance is. Yes, yeah, St. Elmo's Fire is a 1.5. You're going to get comments from your regular listener for that one, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm naming the three films that one film I never finished and the other two I almost walked out on. And I've, I, I've never, I mean, I, Re, Revolutionary Road, I, I didn't finish. Luckily, it was on, on a rental, so I didn't have to. But I've never walked out of the film because I paid for it. And I'm just, I, I'm... Uh, a large part Scottish and uh, f- at least a small part Jewish. And between the two, I'm really cheap. And I know that, you know, so it takes a lot for me to walk, want to walk out of a film. So with that in mind, so where is this film? <laughs> uh, I'll give it a four simply because I would watch it again. In fact, I actually thought, you know, I'll wait a while and maybe this would be something watching it again it would have more meaning and more impact the second time. I think that this is something that I could watch once, maybe twice again. After that, I'm probably not going to have a lot of interest in it. So that's why I can't go as high as a five. So I'll give it a four. All right. Fair enough. So that is a 6.75 average between us. So... With the audience score, we had a 91% for Google users and 85% for Rotten Tomato users. I would have thought for sure that would have been higher, but that's the score. So then to recap, we have Legacy at a 9. We have Impact Significance at a 9.5. We have Novelty at a 10. We have Classicness at an 8.5. We have Rewatchability at a 6.75. And we have an audience score average of 8.8 for a final score of 52.55, which currently places it between Jurassic Park and Groundhog Day just outside of the top 10. Okay. I could buy that. Sure. I think it would really be up there if uh, somebody thought it was a little more rewatchable, but oh well. I'm just teasing. We, yeah. All right. Sorry. I know it's not your movie. I didn't think so. I, I'm just glad that you sat through it and at least enjoyed or appreciated it slightly. So, yes, I mean, I'm I'm as a result of this podcast, I'm watching films that I have not ever really been interested in watching, and so I guess you can teach an old dog new tricks. You learn to appreciate things. And, uh, you know, as I've studied films and filmmaking and the concepts of films and what's involved, I've, I've developed a new appreciation. It may not be something that I would consider my favorite, but I can appreciate what was involved and how it was done and the quality involved. Yeah, we normally do a seasonal recap and a uh, preview for next year. We'll do that here probably in about a month or six weeks or so uh, before we start season two, which is going to shortly include our 100th episode as this is going to be 92 already. But that being said, I, I think there are at least two notable things. I got you to watch The Matrix and you actually thought Jim Carrey had a good performance in a movie. Yes. It's going to be a stretch if you're going to make me watch The Blue People. Oh, that's coming, my friend. That's coming. And you know they have sex with their braids? (laughs) Uh, Oh, I I wanted to get that one in there. Yeah, anyway. All right, remaining questions for this. Yes, if it's all fake, 
okay? If the matrix is all made up, the reality, they're all in these pods, then tell me, tell me why shooting people kills them. Wouldn't you just, the solving of the matrix is where you can train or accept in your mind that it's fake so that the bullets pass through you. That's how you solve the matrix, where you come to the realization that it's fake and that it can't hurt you. See, I'm not sure that's necessarily true because they're plugged in in a way that has neural control over them. And you do have people that live and die within the matrix without ever knowing they're in the matrix. And they already said they intravenously feed the dead to the living. Like they liquefy them. So I think there is concepts or uh, background language to it. But yes, I think it has been one of the more troubling things. It's also the line that I read before. Your mind makes it real and the body cannot live without the mind. They use that as somehow a be all end all of this film. And I'm not sure it really works in the world building, but you kind of just have to look past it in order for the, the true physics of this world to exist the way they want them to. That was the biggest problem I had with the film, because I'm going, well, if it's not real, why do you care if they're shooting at you? <laughs> I, I didn't get the concept. I, I can understand how that concept would be contrary to what they're trying to do in the film, but that's what the thought was that, that permeated my mind and why I had difficulty. I'll admit I had to break this up into two parts because the first part I watched it and I'm kind of getting to this point where it reaches about, uh, I don't know, about 40% of the film in. And I had to take a break because I'm going, I, I don't understand the concept and I can't understand exactly why it's going this way when all you have to do is establish kind of that it doesn't really exist. And once your body follows the mind that you come to the conclusion that it's all not real, then it really doesn't matter. And I had to finally kind of go, all right, that's not where they want me to go with this. So now I'll watch it and just accept the reality they're establishing. And so then I finished the film and it made a lot more sense and was much easier for me to digest. Both of my remaining questions are also world building issues. The first of which, if the agents are fast enough to dodge bullets, how can they not catch up to people running on foot? <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, every time you do what you do when it, or what we do when we see an agent, you run. Okay, and the agents, despite their superhuman abilities, have no ability to catch up to you. On foot. <laughs> it just seems... Oddly asinine to me. The other one to me, it's a two-person job to take you in and out of the matrix because somebody has to control the thing in the back of your head. Somebody has to both plug you in and unplug you. And every time you see somebody coming in and out of the matrix, Tank or Dozer or somebody else is taking the big, long spike thing that they put into your neural passages out of your head, Okay. If that's the case, and it's a two-person job to get you in and out of the Matrix, how did Joe Pantoliano get into the Matrix to meet with the agents without anybody else knowing? It's the part that's always bothered me about this movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. There are some plot holes. Yeah, and I mean, there are even more in the other two movies because they're even less well-constructed, but uh, I don't know. Anyway, it, it just... It bugged me. Regardless, do you have any others? Nope. All right, final thoughts for the week. Not a lot. I mean, 92 episodes. Uh, boy, that's actually quite a bit. Yep. If you even consider the fact that not even all of those are just a simple hour, I would say or I would venture to say that we have at least 90 minutes on probably a good 30 to 40 of those and sometimes close to an hour 45, it's probably easy to venture a guess that we're in the 120 hour range for the amount of content that we've produced and put out. <laughs> well, I just hope people continue to enjoy it and I hope they recommend it to other people who might continue or may enjoy it in the future. So, but it's been, it's been fun up to now. That's for sure. Yeah. We have a lot of things coming up. We've already released our 
schedule upcoming. As I said, we're doing the Terminator next week, and I'll get to that here again in a second. And then we have our holiday movies after that, which I'm looking forward to as well to kind of end up the year. And then uh, some personal choices before we get to our special 100th episode. Yep. I guess we haven't really planned any guests for the 100th episode either, though. And I don't know if uh, anybody would necessarily be interested in that particular choice, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be covering another sci-fi classic from the 1980s, The Terminator, written and directed by James Cameron, starring Michael Bean, Linda Hamilton, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmodepodcast, or find us on Twitter at gmodepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.